Second Samuel chapter 19. If you'll turn with me there. At this time in David's life, we sort of find him at another kind of crisis period where after a season, remember where his son Absalom had rebelled and basically usurped the throne from David and it kind of established himself as the rival king now there in Jerusalem. David had fleed into the countryside, taking with him uh, people who were a part of his household and, and really just trying to avoid a major civil war and a lot of bloodshed. But uh, that wasn't sufficient. Remember, for Absalom, he was so angry, he ultimately was looking for an opportunity to pursue his father, to potentially even take his father's life, to eliminate any chance of David reestablishing himself himself upon the throne there in Jerusalem and unfortunately uh, what Absalom and those who had rallied behind him to support him failed to realize is the incredible uh, military skill and ability that King David had from his prior life experiences. He was very competent in regards to military affairs and so as they launched an attack against David and his men, David and his men strategically used the wilderness and their capabilities to be able to bring a great defeat against Absalom and all his men. In fact, the Bible told us in chapter 18 that uh, upwards to 20,000 people lost their lives as the result really of just this pride and rebellion and just really an effort of division uh, that Absalom had created rebelling against the rightful king who was David at this time. Now, remember in the midst of that battle, the one command David had given to his generals as he sent them out uh, in really a, a tremendous act of compassion, David said, look, when you go out, all I ask is please be gentle with my son Absalom. David wanted somehow for Absalom to be spared. I think David wanted to give him an opportunity perhaps to come to a place of repentance. Certainly, I think David in his own life Keep in mind, David's made quite a great deal of mistakes and failures of his own, and he realizes to some degree that part of all of this that he's experiencing, these circumstances, all tie back to his own sinful and poor choices earlier in life. Remember when he sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba and then murdering Uriah to try and cover up his sin and his whole fiasco that when the prophet came and rebuked David, he told him that one of the consequences of that, though he would be forgiven, is he was told that the sword would never depart from his house and that there would be some of these lingering consequences, some of the painful experiences that, again, this wasn't God's punishment. These were just the natural outcomes of just wrong mistakes uh, that, and foolish choices, really, that David was guilty of and the Lord forgave him. But yet he's reaping some of that. And so I think because of that, David certainly had a compassion probably for Absalom to a degree, maybe then some others did not have because David knew what it was like to fail. And, you know, when someone has uh, been guilty of some big mistakes in their life, uh, one of the credits to their account as the result of that is they typically tend to be a lot more compassionate towards other people's failures. And they typically seem to be individuals maybe who are willing to just hold out the line of grace a little bit further than maybe others would and, and have a little more willingness to believe that, you know what, no matter what it looks like, that, that person may still turn around. They may still ultimately repent and they're willing to just keep kind of extending the rope of opportunity, hoping that that would come to pass. And, and I think that's, to David's credit, why he didn't want to see Absalom put to death and as well the fact that he was wrestling with maybe have I contributed to some of this and the broken relationship and uh, ultimately unfortunately we saw that Joab did not follow David's orders and found Absalom in a vulnerable place and put Absalom David's son to death so word has now traveled back to David as we left off in chapter 18 at the end of it Word now comes from the messenger that his son Absalom has died. And we saw in the last verse of chapter 18 that it says the king was deeply moved, went up to the chamber over the gate and began to weep, it says, and went and said, oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Again, just the heartbreak of this father. He's thinking to himself, if only I could have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. And again, when you look at David's words, they're not only just the, again, very legitimate grief. I mean, this is a father grieving for his son. Keep in mind, as I said, this is the second son David has already lost. 
another son had been murdered years prior to this by Absalom as well. So uh, again, this is just typical grief of a father grieving over the loss of his child. And, and again, this child that David, no doubt, had already you know watched kind of just make poor choices. He had been living rebellious and rather than the best and ideal coming to pass in his rebellion, he dies in the midst of that poor behavior in that season in his life. So David's grieved over this. And I think, again, I think you have a combination here of incredible grief mixed together with a whole lot of guilt and all kinds of other baggage from the family dynamics. So, I mean, David's just really at this point having a tremendous, to a lot of degrees, you could say, really kind of like an emotional breakdown. Uh, and we see that now as we go into chapter 19, because it tells us that Joab was told, chapter 19, verse 1, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory, remember, David and his men had just wrought a great victory on his behalf. Those who remained loyal to David defeated Absalom and his soldiers. They won a great victory, which has now opened the door for David to ascend back to the throne where he rightfully belongs there in Jerusalem. So this should have been a day of great celebration and a victory march. But it says, verse 2, the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it. And said that day, the king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back into the city that day as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So David is in the throes of grief. He's really just having a, a realistic, an emotional breakdown, a, a real crisis personally at this point. Uh, and as he's doing this, it has become so intensified that word is now beginning to spread around among the troops and those who had defended David's cause and remained loyal to him and won this battle when they were attacked by Absalom and their soldiers. And here they have just won a victory for King David, their, their king they were loyal to. And it tells us that the people were beginning to become, instead of excited, they started actually feeling bad at this point, And they start feeling almost ashamed. It says, verse 3, they retreated back into the city as people who were ashamed when they've lost a battle or they're fleeing in battle. So instead of celebrating a victory, they actually feel like that this is a huge defeat because David is so concerned and emotionally distraught over his son that's died in the battle. And, and David, it seems, is kind of just unable to regulate his emotions in this situation here. Now, is it normal to grieve? Absolutely. Uh, grief is a normal thing. Emotions are a normal thing. And whether that, that those emotions are from grief alone or grief and then a combination of guilt and other baggage and you know, just kind of an accumulation of all kinds of different circumstances and experiences and emotions kind of converging together. But what we see here happen, unfortunately, is David seems to be unable to regulate his emotions. And his emotions are just taking over his life and have kind of put him in a place where really he's kind of come somewhat out of control. And as a result of this, verse 5, Joab, it says, came into the king, his general, remember, and said to him, today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life. David, these men risked their lives for you. They fought a battle for you and you're disgracing them now by rather than making them feel appreciated, making them actually feel bad because all you do is just keep grieving and mourning and making a public display of your emotions over your son Absalom who was a rebel and who had caused all these problems to everyone in Israel. So he says, David, you're disgracing your servants. They've saved your lives, the lives of your sons and daughters the lives of your wives and of your concubines. In that, he says, verse 6, you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today, I perceive, he says, that if Absalom had lived and all of us, your faithful soldiers, had died today, then it would have pleased you well. So he's saying, David, what you're doing here is wrong. David, I understand you're upset, he's saying, but, but you've allowed your emotions 
to dominate your behavior and to cause you to start to behave in a wrong way now. And you're failing to take into consideration how your emotional crisis is now causing hurt and confusion and really disregard for everyone else around you. And your inability to regulate your own emotions is causing problems to everyone else. And you're failing to realize that you should be showing appreciation right now. David, you're not just a man. You're also the king. And you have an obligation to all these people who serve you and who you lead. So he's saying, David, what you are doing here is wrong. So verse 7, he says, now therefore arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. So he says, David, if you don't go out there and show your appreciation and get control of yourself emotionally and express your gratitude and your thanks and comfort these soldiers who fought for you in the battle. He says, David, you're risking all of them just turning away from you as well because they feel so disrespected and unappreciated for what they've just done in laying their lives on the line for you. And again, as, as a leader here, we see David in the wrong. We see David here failing to consider and remember that he has a larger responsibility to help people and his grief appears to be like a lack of gratitude and he was wrongly allowing, again, his emotions, his feelings, legitimate as they were, but he was wrongly allowing those emotions and feelings and thoughts to overcome his life, to paralyze him and to make him act in a way that was not proper towards the rest of those around him. And he's now neglecting his commitment and neglecting his role to care for those around him. And really, he's rebuked for his error. And as we look at this, I think it's just a good reminder because emotions, listen, they're real. Grief is real. It's normal. We should grieve when hard things happen. We should mourn when death and things like this take place. There, there's nothing wrong with that. That's healthy. It's proper. There are going to be times when we're going to deal with disappointments or you know, maybe guilt and grief even over mistakes and things that we've done in our past. Like David, I said, I believe this was a combination of grief and guilt just all mixed together in one big pot of stew here coming out of him in this meltdown that he's happened. And listen, emotions are real. They're proper. But we have to also learn to regulate our emotions as human beings. And we can't allow our feelings and our emotions to dominate us and to overtake us to a degree that we then begin to process things wrongly or we begin to neglect our responsibilities and commitments to other people around us where we almost somewhat can become selfish in our own emotional sort of storm cloud that we're in. And sometimes it's necessary to push past how we feel. Look, I hope that you have experienced times in your life where everything within you was, was screaming not to do something, not to keep going, and, and, and you were truly feeling that, but that you made a decision of your will that you chose to push past how you felt, you chose to still do what was right, even if you were discouraged or depressed or downcast or completely grief-stricken, that you realize, but there are still higher responsibilities than me just feeling entitled to just be paralyzed and wallow in my own self-pity. And so David here is rebuked by Joab for this. And verse 8, look what he does. It says, the king arose. See, that's the choice there. That's what David, David said, you know what, you're right, I'm wrong. I've let my emotions get the best of me and, and certainly I, I'm great, but I need to do what's right. So the king got up, he, he in a sense chose to do something beyond what he was feeling and, and that's hard to do, but it was a choice of the will. The Bible says God can give to us self-control. We have a will, we can exercise it. So the king, no matter how grief-stricken he was, he arose, he went and sat in the gate, and they told all the people, saying, There is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king, for everyone in Israel had fled to his tent. So David goes out and he begins to take Joab's counsel now to begin to address and interact with the people again, lest he make a worse situation. In verse 9, it was a good thing that he did, because notice there were some difficulties among the people. There was a, a breakdown that was starting to happen. Verse 9 says, Now all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king saved us from the hand of our enemies. 
He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us as our king, they say, well, he's died in the battle. He's dead now. He's not around anymore. Now, therefore, they said, verse 10, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? So it, it seems there was this dispute and ongoing dialogue happening among the people now i mean the for a time period there was sort of this brief division there some had given their support to absalom who they had chosen to make their new king others had remained loyal to david well absalom's now died david the rightful king of israel is still out in the wilderness he's not back on the throne in jerusalem so dialogue begins to generate among the people here and they're beginning to dispute and and some are saying well listen I mean, I mean, David was the, the chief one who always delivered us from our enemies anyway. I mean, he was acting like our king even when Saul was our king. And he did great things for us and, and, and helped us to be delivered from the hand of the Philistines. And, and then others were saying, yeah, but he also vacated the throne. And, and he left and he fleed Jerusalem. And, and was that really the right thing to do or was that the wrong thing to do? And, and certainly there were others chiming in. Well, hey, I mean, bottom line is Absalom's dead now. We need a king. So why aren't we talking about, why are we just standing here and disputing among ourselves and, and kind of continuing in this state of, of confusion and indecision and not bringing back David and putting him back on the throne and letting him rule over us the way that we all probably know that he rightfully should. And notice what's taking place here in verses 9 and 10 as the people are disputing. Because I think there's a principle here. Because the right king was not currently reigning and ruling, people were disputing. And there was a, an atmosphere of confusion. There was disruption. There was indecision and there was a lot of contention and confusion among people. And I think there's a principle in that because when the rightful king, when Jesus is not ruling, when Jesus is not on the throne in our lives, whether it's among our families or whether it's you know, among the church or whatever, when Jesus is not on the throne and the rightful king is not reigning the way he's supposed to, what that often does, the byproduct of that is it causes people to become divisive. It causes an atmosphere of confusion and disruption and there's indecision and, and there's uh, you know, just an, an inability to be able to come to terms with things and make choices and take actions. And so whether it's in my own life personally, if Jesus isn't reigning the way he should, my life is filled with confusion and indecision and I'm, I, I'm not making progress the way that I should. And if Jesus is not on the throne in a marriage and Jesus isn't reigning in a family or among a church, an atmosphere like this is what begins to happen. And the rightful king is not there. And this is a chapter where we're going to see they now seek to bring David back and to get David, the king, back on the throne, ruling over them once again. So verse 11, as this is going on, word travels back to David. The people are talking about this, but nothing is being done. So King David, it says, sent to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Remember, they had remained back in Jerusalem. And we're sort of sending out intel to David as he had been pushed out. And he sent word to them, hearing about this, saying, speak to the elders of Judah. Remember, that was David's tribe. So this was his own flesh and blood. Saying, why are you the last to bring back the king to his house? Since the words of all Israel have come to the king to his very house. So he says, look, I've heard about what the people are talking about. You're my own flesh and blood of all people. I would think that you would certainly have a level of loyalty to me, to me first. You are my brethren, he says, verse 12. Are my bone and my flesh, why then are you the last to bring back the king? So David's questioning of all people. I would think that you would be the first to take action upon this. And he says, I don't understand why you're not doing anything about it. So he's beginning to dialogue with them in regards to this. And he says, verse 13, and say to Amasa. Now, remember, that's who Absalom had made his general. But Amasa, remember, also was one of David's family members. He was a nephew of David. So he was a family member. And I think David wanting them to see, look, I'm not embittered here. I'm not looking to take revenge, even though people rebelled against me and did me wrong and caused me and my family harm. I'm not looking to be vindictive here because David says in verse 13, tell Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh or my family? 
God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of the army before me continually in the place of Joab. Now, that's pretty shocking. Keep in mind, Amasa is not a trained general. He's not someone who's been successful. He just lost a horrible battle on behalf of Absalom where Absalom died and Joab and his men conquered and destroyed 20,000 of their troops. But David here, number one, he probably may have a, a beginning of an inkling that the way that Absalom had died, remember, was at the hands of Joab. And that his general Joab had disregarded his orders. And so as a way maybe to begin to deal with that and as a way to demonstrate that he's not angry and vindictive, that he's willing to come back in a peaceable way and reassume the rulership that he rightly was always entitled to, he says, look, he, he says to his own, even tell Amasa, I'll even give him, of all people, the most unworthy guy. I'm willing to be gracious here. The most unworthy individual, I'll let him become commander in Joab's place and to be the one who's the new general over my army. And David here, very graciously, very gently, very diplomatically, is beginning to rebuild relationship with people who had rebelled against him, who had turned away from him. And I want you to consider this. I mean, David could honestly, if you think about it, when Absalom was put to death, now he's been removed, and 20,000 people of his army have just been defeated, he could have taken the momentum of the victory and with his men just forcibly went right back into Jerusalem and like, look, I'm the king, move out of the way, we all know. I mean, he could have just really asserted himself very strongly, very forcibly, could have got kind of demanding and forceful and look, you know what's right, so move out of my way and give me my throne back. And I mean, he could have just you know, exerted his authority. But instead, in this very meek, very gracious, humble way, he's gently, softly dealing with the people and he's trying to reason with them. He's reasoning with them about something really that's totally unreasonable, which is he's the rightful king. He should be who's ruling over them. And David is saying, look, don't you think it would be reasonable? I don't, I'm not even looking to punish you. Yes, you've rebelled against my rulership as your king, but I don't want to punish you. In fact, I'm willing to do some really gracious things, even let the most unworthy guy become my general. And he said, I want to be gracious. I just want to come back and assume the role of helping you by ruling over you as your king. You know, I look at David's heart here and I think, what a picture of Jesus that is. Because sometimes we reject the rulership of Jesus in our lives. We take our little tours of maybe rebellion or backsliding against letting Jesus have the rightful rule in our lives. And, and, and Jesus doesn't just come back like a bull in a china shop. and He doesn't force his rulership upon us, though he could and though he should. That's what's reasonable and right. Jesus often, he's very gracious and, and he kind of reasons with us. You know, we think of the statement in Isaiah where, where God says to people, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. And to think about that, God, Jesus, reasoning with us and saying, look, I, I, I'm not looking to be forceful. And, and Jesus says he stands at the door of our heart. Remember, Revelation tells us, stands at the door of and he knocks on the door of our heart. And, and he knocks on the door of our heart and he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and fellowship with him. Jesus was saying that to a church. He, that really isn't an evangelistic verse. Certainly it's fitting and we, I think, use it and God's word has that ability to be used. But that verse, that statement of Jesus is really a statement of Christ to believers, to a church who had basically pushed Jesus outside. And Jesus is knocking on the door of the church saying, um, uh, could I come back in there? Uh, I mean, could, could I like be, in, be involved again? I mean, I mean, I mean, first I just became the mascot and then I actually got just totally pushed out. Now it's all about the personality or, or it's all about this or who you are or your act. And Jesus said, could I be a part of the church again? And again, you would think, again, Jesus says, I will build my church. He's the rightful ruler over the church in the body of Christ. He's the head of the church. He could say, knock on a door. Are you kidding me? I'll blow the door open. I'm gonna, that's my house. You get out of here. I mean, he could be like that, but he knocks on the door and he graciously asks again, can I, 
Can I please have my rightful role? Can I, can I help you by ruling again the way that I should? And here David just graciously, softly doing this. And notice, as the result of that, verse 14, it says, So he swayed the hearts of the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man. So they sent this word out to the king, saying, Return, you and all your servants. Notice, David's gracious approach of reconciliation worked incredibly. It says the hearts of the people were swayed and like one man. Interesting. Look at that. Unity came back amongst them and their hearts were swayed. Their hearts weren't stolen or forced. Their hearts were swayed. That is, he won their hearts over. He won their hearts over with his love and his gentleness and his gracious approach. He won their hearts over by not forcing himself. And as a result of that, you notice there is this invitation now to the king, return you and all your servants. And that's what the Lord wants. When he's been pushed off the throne, he wants us to say, Lord, would you return? Lord, return. Rule over us again. Take charge again, Lord. Lord, I've, I've taken over the throne of my heart personally and, and I'm sorry for that. And so, Lord, you've won my heart over with your love and patience and grace. Would you return and reign in me again, Lord? Rule over me in the way that you once did and the way that you should. Or, or I think he wants us at times to invite him, to call him back. And so here, this is beautiful turning of their hearts back to their rightful king as a group of people from Judah. And verse 15 says, notice the king returned and he came to the Jordan. So when Jesus is invited, just like David, he answers, he returns. He came back to the Jordan now and Judah says, came to Gilgal. Remember that was the first place when they came in over the Jordan into the land of Israel. So it's a very significant spot. They come to Gilgal to go out and meet the king, to escort the king across the Jordan River. And watch this, what happens now, verse 16. So now they're ready to escort David back across the Jordan, back into the land to reassume his throne. And Shimei, the son of Jerah, a Benjamite, who was from Bahurim. Now, do you remember who Shimei was? He was that guy, that wild character when David was fleeing Jerusalem, heartbroken, disappointed. I mean, just at a low spot in his life who just added insult to injury. Remember when David was going out of the city, Shimei was this guy, it says from Saul's house, who came and remember he was cursing David and he was throwing rocks at David. Remember, and he was saying, this is all your fault and you're just getting what you deserve. And the reason why these things are happening to you is this is all payback. And don't think this is anything other than you're just a jerk and you're a dead dog. And I mean, he's just calling David all these names and he's cursing him and just disgracing him in front of everybody and throwing stones at the king of Israel. And remember, David's servant was like, boss, do you want me to go take his head off? And David's like, no, just... Let him curse. Let him. Maybe I'm supposed to hear something that he's saying, and and and, and I don't need you to don't don't prove what he's saying is true. I don't want him to, you know, think that he's right in what he's saying. That I am a bloodthirsty man and that I'm violent in my ways. So he just very mercifully let it go as this man was just calling out these names and curses against David. Well, look what happened. Shimei, that's who this is here, hurried. And came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. So he hears they're bringing David back. He's going to come back and he's going to get on the throne again. The king is returning to his throne, to his power, to all of his authority. He's thinking, man, I better go humble myself. I better go make amends here because I've played the fool and I've acted pretty dumb and rude. So it says there was a thousand men with him. of Ziba the servant of the house of Saul and 15 sons and his 20 servants with him and they went over the Jordan before the king and there was a ferry boat there that went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good so as they're now getting ready to to bring them across there's this sort of this ferry boat transitioning people across the Jordan now now Shimei verse 18 here goes his prostrating himself in total humility now for what he's done. The son of Gera fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. And he said to the king, do not let my Lord impute iniquity to me or remember what wrong your servant did 
on that day that my Lord the King left Jerusalem, that the King should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come out today of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my Lord, the King. So, I mean, Shimei thinks, you know what, man, I, I was the worst in the way that I acted. I was the biggest fool. I treated him worse than anyone else. So he says, I got I to gotta make amends for this. So he says, I'm going to be the first one right there to welcome him when he comes back. And you want to talk about someone who not only is just trying to humble himself and repent, but to me, this is a guy who to some degree is exercising faith that David's merciful and that David's gracious. I mean, this guy is putting himself at risk and he's actually taking a chance on the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace of King David, even though he clearly knows, you can tell by his own admission of his actions, he says, don't impute my iniquity to me, the wrong your servant did on the day you left, and he says, for I know that I have sinned. He says, David, I know that I have been foolish. What I did was wrong. I acted in a horrible way. And yet look at this. Sometimes after very foolish behavior in the past, people do come to their senses. And they do realize that they want to repent and that the way they behaved was wrong. And so he, in a repentant attitude, comes before David. He says, I'm going to be the first guy there to greet him and I am going to beg for his mercy and tell him that I've behaved foolishly and he's confessing his sin and he's acting, asking for David to have mercy upon him and not take to heart what he did and he just acknowledges what he did wrong. In verse 21, Abishai, who was the same guy last time, who wanted to take off the head of this man who was cursing David, Abishai, the son of Zariah, he answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? So he says, look, boss, on the way out, okay, I understand. Maybe you weren't sure if you were ever going to take your throne back. But here's proof of my point. This guy cursed you, and now you're still the king of Israel. Let me kill this guy. I mean, what he did was horrible. It was wrong. It was a disgrace and it caused you grief at one of the hardest times of your life and you are the king of Israel and he dishonored you. And so notice this man Abishai, we see him multiple times and this is his sort of default in his attitude. He was the one that was with David, remember, years ago when David was right next to Saul and the spear was there and he said to David, David, let me just run him through with the spear. Let me just kill him. And then when they're on the way out and, and, and Shimei's cursing, it was Abishai that said, let me just kill him. And now again, here comes Shimei and he's, and he's again prostrating himself in front of everybody on his face, humbling himself, begging for forgiveness, trying to reconcile the wrong that he's done and showing that, that he's behaved foolishly and he wants to change and he wants to not, And he says, yeah, but he still deserves to die. I mean, his default mechanism is judgment, judgment, judgment. I mean, that's what he's into. And unfortunately, that is the nature of some human beings. And Abishai just says, Wait, can I kill this guy? Let the, what he did was wrong. But David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should be adversaries to me today? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For do I not know that today I'm king over Israel. He says, look, I'm secure. I, I know who I am. I know that I'm the proper king over Israel. Therefore, verse 23, the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And I bet there was a big, Phew, because the king swore to him. Notice the two different responses, because these are typical different responses when people who have failed and done foolish things choose to try and repent and try and change and, and, and make you know atonement. And they say, look, I've come to my senses. I acted foolishly. I did some wrong things in my past, but I'm sorry for them. And, and I, I want to change and I want to do what's right. Some people like Abishai, they refuse the apology and they just want punishment. I don't care whether you're apologizing. I don't care if you want to change. You just deserve to be punished, cut and dry. 
And they have a very hard heart and a very judgmental, critical spirit. And that is the nature of, quite honestly, typically the way humanity normally does behave. But King David shows the exact opposite. The one, listen, the one who actually has the right to punish. Says, I don't want to punish. You don't even have the right to punish and you want to punish on my behalf. He's saying, I'm the king. I have the authority and the right to punish this man, to put him to death, but I want to show mercy. I want to be gracious to him. I want to extend a pardon to him. And again, others desiring the release. David pictures the release from guilt and the willingness to pardon and forgive. And again, what a beautiful picture because that's often the contrast of humanity and King Jesus. Humanity, the flesh, wants to behave like uh, Abishai does there, judge people and condemn them and let them punish and suffer for their wrongdoing and failures and let them just experience the full brunt of all the wrong things they've done. And Jesus, the one who sinned against the king, the one who has the authority, is the one who wants to often be merciful and be gracious. In fact, you notice that Jesus or, or David here, in a picture of Jesus, to me, rebukes Abishai and says to him, why, he says, should you be adversaries to me today? In other words, David says to Abishai, your judgmental attitude makes you more of an enemy today than this man who's done foolishly in his past. That's astonishing. He says, you're acting more like my adversary than this man. Yes, this man behaved like a fool. Yes, he did some foolish things. Yes, he disgraced me and did so. But he says, you know what? Your attitude right now to want to punish him so severely, that's more of like an enemy to me than what this man is. And boy, what a great reminder because to realize the nature of Jesus is John 8. Remember where Jesus says, as the only one who could condemn that woman who was caught in the act of adultery, they all wanted to cast the stones. Hey, we want to judge her. She deserves to be judged. And Jesus, the only one who had the right to judge her, said, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Stop your sin. Don't do it anymore. But, but he chose not to condemn. And here, David, this beautiful picture of the heart of Jesus. And I can imagine those words of assurance, you shall not die. That must have felt wonderful for him to be able to hear that, that he was not going to be punished. And how wonderful when we hear Jesus assure us of his forgiveness and assure us he's not going to punish us. It does great things to our soul. Well, verse 24, next we see Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king as he's crossing back over now. And it says, he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes. So this guy was a wreck, the Bible's trying to say. From the day that the king had departed until the day that he returned now in peace. Now remember, Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, David's best friend. And remember, Mephibosheth was this man who was a son of David's friend Jonathan, who was lame in his feet, and David had brought him in. He had shown kindness to him on behalf of Jonathan. He let him eat at the king's table. He commanded Ziba and his servants to take care of Mephibosheth because he was paralyzed to work his fields for him. But remember, it tells us that when they were leaving and going out, that Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, came and met David, we saw a few chapters ago, with all kinds of supplies. And David thought, wow, well, that's a nice gesture. And he said, so by the way, where's your master Mephibosheth? Why is he not with you? And Ziba said, oh, you know, I hate to break it to you, David. I brought all these supplies to you. This isn't from Mephibosheth in his gratitude. I brought all these things out to you to help you out. But he's actually going to stay back in Jerusalem because he's thinking what a perfect opportunity to turn the tables and maybe David will die and Absalom will get killed and I can take back over the throne that my family was rightfully originally entrusted with because I'm still a descendant of Saul. And so he made up this whole plot and story to make David feel almost more you know, violated and betrayed and remember at that moment David made a quick judgment without checking the facts and he just listened to one side of a story in a dilemma and he just believed the account of, of Ziba, the servant who came out to him and he said, you know what? If that's the case, then everything that once belonged to Mephibosheth, it's now you or Ziba. And he turned it all over to Ziba and David, I think you're going to see here, as I said in that chapter, basically in his emotional state of weakness, 
made a quick judgment. And when we are hurting emotionally, one of the biggest dangers is that we can make poor judgments in those times. And we don't reason maybe as properly as we should because in our emotional weakness, our judgment gets clouded and he makes a quick judgment. And now here comes Mephibosheth as David's coming back and you can tell that he hasn't been taking care of himself as he hasn't cared for his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed himself since the day that King David had left. The idea there is he was in a state of grief. He was saddened and brokenhearted that his king was not upon the throne. So it was, it says verse 25, when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, that the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? Where were you? How come you didn't go with me with the rest of us when we left? And he answered, my Lord, O king, my servant deceived me. Ziba took advantage of me. He loaded up that donkey and perhaps Mephibosheth told him to and he then took it and he went and he switched around the story and he deceived his master Mephibosheth for your servant said I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame and he has slandered look at it verse 27 he has slandered your servant to my lord the king but my lord the king is like an angel of God therefore do what is good in your sight for all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king, yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore, what right have I to still cry out any more to the king? So the king said to him, why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said you and Ziba divide the land. So David now, here's the other side of the story. Again, this is a great reminder of what Proverbs tells us. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it's a folly and a shame to him. And this is the proverb David's living out right now. He answered the matter. He just gave all the, the, the rights and the land privileges over to Ziba because he never heard Mephibosheth's side. And he just became sympathetic to the first person who came to him and shared their story and as i've said that that's a real thing we have to be careful of so often the first person that comes there's a proverb that says well the first person that comes sounds right until their neighbor comes and cross examines them and so now david's hearing mephibosheth's side and he's realizing oh man in my moment of just being caught up in this emotionally i just listened to ziba's story and i never took any consideration of the fact that I wonder what Mephibosheth's side of the matter is. And now Mephibosheth is getting a chance to share his side. And he's saying, listen, David, he deceived me. He did me wrong. He took advantage of me in my paralyzed condition and went out and he slandered me. And he was just an opportunist. And he took advantage of me and my paralysis. And he took advantage of you and your emotional connection to what was going on. And he basically slandered me and made me look like that I was the one who was in the wrong and created this situation. So David's now stuck. He's turned this land over. So David now, again, and he doesn't have all the facts. So I think he makes the best out of a situation that he could. He says, you know what? No more partiality. Just divide the land. You take half and he can have half. And David just tries to make the best of a situation by showing complete impartiality and he says look here's the best i can do because i don't have the facts and i don't have both sides and i apparently have already made a poor judgment complete equality you have half and you have half and he just tries to do the best with what he can with a touchy and difficult situation but you see mephibosheth's heart here in verse 30 look at it which i think this is why he was the one that was conveying the truth though he was the one that looked the worst at first then Mephibosheth said to the king, rather let him take it all inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. So Mephibosheth says, you know what? Honestly, uh, king, I, I, I'm just glad that you're back. Your presence matters more to me. I don't even care about the land. He can have all the land. I'm not in it for what I can get from you. I love you. I care about you, your presence, and the fact that you're back on the throne as my king. That's what matters to me more than anything. And I love this picture of Mephibosheth. I think it not only allows us to see that he probably was the one who was in the right and the more genuine one in this situation of a two-sided story, but I love what you see in Mephibosheth is that Mephibosheth here is more interested in the presence of his king than he is what his king can provide for him or the material blessings or the privileges or the perks of the throne. And I look at that and I think, wow, Lord, I pray that my heart could be more like that. 
I pray that my heart would be more like that to say, you know what? I'm not as concerned. If there are no provisions and no privileges from the throne, fine. It's your presence, Lord. Your presence, the presence of the king should matter to us more than the privileges we get from a king or the provision we get. And sometimes we need to be careful. You know, we, we sometimes start to love the gifts more than we do the giver and the blessings more than we do the, the, the one who's the blesser. And here Mephibosheth says, I just, it's your presence. Your presence, just to have you back ruling over my life and to be able to be at your table and be in your presence, that's what matters to me more than anything. May we love the presence of our King Jesus more than anything else that he would do for us or give to us. That's the right heart. Well, verse 31 tells us also Barzillai, the Gileadite, came down from Rogelim and he went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now, Barzillai, it says verse 32, was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mahanim, for he was very rich. So Barzillai was a very generous man. We saw this. He came out with provisions and helped sustain David. He was wealthy. It says a very rich man, an 80-year-old man. And because he was very rich, he does what those who are wealthy should do, as the Bible commands, which is use their resources to be helpful. Not to be self-indulgent or build up their own little you know, self-indulgent kingdom. He was generous. He, he sought to help and support those who were in need. And he helped out King David and the causes of the Lord by supplying David. And the king, appreciative of this, said to Barzillai, come across with me. And I will now provide for you. Notice, if you bless the king and, and, and contribute to the causes of the king, he's going to make sure you're never going to outgive him. And so now the king in return says to him, look, come back with me now. He says, I want to provide for you and live with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am today 80 years old. Can I discern between good and bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or drink? So his taste buds are starting to fail. He says, yeah, those great feasts that you throw. He says, honestly, king, I'm 80. I can't even taste that stuff anymore. <laughs> It's just food going in. I can't even tell what I'm eating. All I know is I'm eating something. He says, and king, I can't even hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women. So he says, those great concerts you throw. I can't tell if the person is out of tune or the most beautiful singer. He says, my, my hearing's going. Why then should your servant further be a burden to my lord, the king? He says, look, I'm 80 years old. Everything in me is wearing out. And if I come there, I'm not going to be able to enjoy the blessings of being in your palace and taken care of by you. He says, I'm just going to be a burden. So he does something again. Look at this very, very generous. It says, your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king. And why should the king repay me with such a reward? I'm not worthy of this, he says anyway. Please let your servant turn back again that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him cross over with my lord, the king, and do for him what seems good to you? And the king answered, Chimham shall cross over with me and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now, whatever you request of me, I will do for you. And all the people went over the Jordan and the king crossed over and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and he returned to his own place. And the king went on to Gilgal and Chimham went with him and all the people of Judah escorted the king and half the people of Israel. So this really interesting thing, David, as the king, wants to return favor and grace to Barzillai for his loyalty to the throne and his faithfulness to the cause of the king. So he wants to reward him. Uh, it says Barzillai doesn't feel worthy of it. And on top of that, he thinks, you know, I can't even enjoy the benefits and the blessings of this. So he says, but however, listen, he shows his generosity. He says, all the blessings that I would receive... Can you give them to my son, Chimham? And most believe that Chimham was possibly a son or a close. He says, can you, can you give all those blessings to him? Can all the favor you would show to me, can you show him all that favor and all that grace? And David says, hey, that's fine. If that's what you want me to do through his relationship to you, I'll pass all those blessings and favor on to him. And I look at this and I think, wow, what a beautiful picture that is of really how you and I because of our relationship to Jesus, we come, become recipients of all the grace that comes from the throne, all the favor that comes from the throne. And just like Chimham, because he was in a relationship with Barzillai, 
He gets all the benefits. He becomes the benefactor of the favor and the grace from the throne itself coming into his life. And he didn't do anything to deserve it. It was only because he had a connection to a man who was in a place of favor. And you know what? Because of who Jesus is and because of his connection to the throne, the throne of God, you and I, like Chimham, we become the benefactors. And we get blessed and we get favor and grace and all kinds of good things poured into our life that we don't earn, work, or deserve in any way, but it's just because we're connected to Jesus that all the favor and grace and kindness of the throne comes into our lives in an amazing way. The New Testament teaches this all throughout how we have access to the throne of God and his grace because of Jesus. And verse 41 says, Just then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to him, why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king to his household and all David's men came with him across the Jordan? So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel saying, because the king is a close relative of ours, why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten the king at the king's expense or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel then answered in dispute with Judah saying, we have 10 shares in the king. Therefore, also, we have more right to David than you. Why then do you despise us? We're not we'd be the first to advise to bring back our king. It was our idea first anyway, they say. Yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now, this little dispute here on the day that David's coming back will translate into where we go in the next chapter. But notice, at a time, right, when the people should have been rejoicing. To no extent, the king's back on his throne. Things are going back into the will of God again. When they should have been rejoicing and celebrating, people are disputing over who's more important, over who's entitled to their rights, over who is really the ones that you know, should be benefited in this way and that way. And this is, again, just a reminder. Let it be a closing reminder to us why we need to have a king rule over us. These people were a mess when there was no king on the throne. When there was no king on the throne and they weren't submitted to a ruler over their lives, they were just a mess. Fighting, disputing, selfish attitudes that weren't right. And, and because people by nature, we are unruly and selfish. And that's why we all need to have a king that rules over us. And to the degree that we all let the king rule over us, there's a lot more harmony among us and our attitudes are a lot more as they ought to be. Let's stand together. We'll wrap it up there. Let's pray and